Thin Air is an independently created podcast and is supported in part by our patrons at patreon.com slash thinairpodcast. In addition to helping us make our show, our patrons get rewards like stickers, ad-free episodes, and bonus episodes. We would love for you to check us out, so head on over to patreon.com slash thinairpodcast. This episode of Thin Air is brought to you by Aptive. Aptive produces audio-based workouts created by certified personal trainers, all available through a mobile app. New members get 50% off an annual membership when they visit aptive.com slash thin air. That's A-A-P-T-I-V dot com slash thin air. All persons mentioned in this episode are innocent until proven guilty. January 2015. 42-year-old Joanne Hakes is living in Afton, Wyoming, a small town near the Wyoming-Idaho border. She's with her boyfriend of a few years, a man named Ronald Wareheim, and they're staying at the Silver Stream Lodge, also known as the Silver Stream Lodge and Liquor Store. The lodge itself is more of a collection of small cabins than one large central lodge per se, and each cabin is available for rent. The cabins sit on a lonely stretch of highway surrounded by woods and the Salt River. On its website, it describes itself as being, quote, tucked away in the quiet bend of a trout stream in the mountains of western Wyoming, end quote, but also bills itself as a place with ample parking and a quick place to sleep while passing through town. It's hard to say when Joanne began staying at the lodge or when she moved to Afton in the first place. With Ron, she moved around a lot, usually between Wyoming and eastern Idaho, cities like Pocatello and Idaho Falls. Her Facebook profiles, I could find three, all list different places of residence between 2010 and 2015. So, as is the case with so many disappearances of people with unstable home lives and relationships, the details of what happened to her are at best unclear and, at worst, completely lost. But we do have one account, Ron's, Joanne's boyfriend, the details of which are some of the only published information about her case. Ron's story was this. On the night of January 3rd, the two were drinking at the Silver Stream Lodge where they were staying. Ron claimed that Joanne got drunk, made some kind of scene, and was thrown out by the bartender around 10 or 10.30 p.m. Ron said that once they were outside, two men in a truck pulled up, acquaintances of Joanne's, and then taking only her debit card, she left with the two men never to return. My mom had been her whole life. She put herself in situations that weren't great, I guess you could say. It was kind of like, okay, well, maybe she just is on another situation and she'll come back and everything will be fine. Around this time, Joanne wasn't close with many people in her life outside of Ron. And the relationship with her family was somewhat strained. Joanne had two children, a son and a daughter, both of whom were adults in 2015. Laura, Joanne's daughter, spoke about her mom's lifestyle and how that often made it hard to be close to her. 
she just got into different boyfriends and who did did do drugs, who were abusive. There was a time where I really thought my mom was going to be probably dead a lot sooner. Laura and Joanne's relationship had always had its problems. As Joanne struggled with drug addiction, she had put up her two children for adoption early in their lives. From the time I was like one and a half to seven, I had no idea who she was. I was living with my step-parents. And then she got me back. And from seven, I guess, to 12 is when I lived with her. Living with Joanne for these five years as a child was hard on Laura and her brother. As she explained, Joanne had a difficult childhood, and while they lived with her, they experienced abuse themselves. Her mom had died when she was born. Then her dad was very abusive, and it kind of led into her parenting, and that's all she knew. Her true love showed when she put me and my brother up for adoption. She she knew, you know, the abuse was never going to stop. She was never going to stop, you know, hitting us, and... And her, her drug life wasn't going to stop. And so, out of love, she gave us up for adoption, and that was the best thing she probably could have ever done. I mean, my mom was, she made mistakes. She was very into the drug world and doing drugs, and that was just her lifestyle, and it never really changed after she put my brother and I up for our adoption. As Laura grew up, she tried to have a relationship with her mom, one that she admits was more of a friend than a parent. Laura watched as her mom went through a cycle of abusive and unhealthy relationships. Laura began to have relationships of her own with men, like boyfriends. Her mom would often disapprove of the choices that Laura made. Our relationship really, really strengthened from between the age of 18 to probably about 23. Then we we had some struggles just because I was in a relationship that wasn't good for either one of us. She was so angry and upset that I had left a guy, which she never could do in any circumstance. And I really had to like get her to understand that, you know, there's certain things women don't have to put up with. Laura also mentioned briefly a former relationship of Joanne's with a man who had hurt Laura when she was a child. She didn't specify how this man hurt her, but her relationship with her mom had always suffered because even though Joanne knew this man hurt Laura, she didn't leave him. She she never really could leave a guy, and that's where her and I had a lot of struggles, is she never left a guy that did hurt me when I was younger. And that's where a lot of the forgiveness never came into play. But I mean, we did, we talked, we'd have our fights. We'd not talk for three months and, you know, talk again. Christmas 2014, a month before Joanne went missing. She sent Laura a message on Facebook and said that she wanted Laura to meet Ron, that they had just gotten engaged. But Laura wasn't ready to do this and asked for some space. She had just gotten engaged and was really, really excited. And she was looking forward to, uh, I think, getting married in that spring. Ron wanted to meet. And I just, at the time, I just was not in that right spot to be seeing her yet. There was a lot of trust issues I had. 
On New Year's Day 2015, Joanne tried to get in touch with Laura again. She actually messaged me Happy New Year on January 1st. You know, I was over at a friend's house and I, I was to the point where I just, I was very stubborn. She, I just couldn't believe that she was still making the same choices she was making after all these years. And I, you know, I, I couldn't even say love you. I would just say you too. I mean, I, I have kids now. I have kids and I just didn't understand why, why she did the things she did to me. And so a lot of that forgiveness never, never came until after she went missing. The fact that it was just things I didn't get to tell her. She tried to add me on Facebook, which to this day, I regret not ever adding her. But she tried to add me on Facebook on um, January 1st. And I just told her, I said, you know, Mom, I, I can't trust you yet. I don't know who you're you're being around. And I don't want my kids, I don't want my kids to see. That was all I said to her is that I didn't trust her. And then I, then I blocked her off Facebook that night. And then I was hanging out with a friend January 4th, and I had a question that I never got a response. And little did I know she had gone missing that night or the day before. Laura doesn't find out that no one has seen her mom until police contact her on January 10th. And I was already in bed, so I was like, well, my mom... My mom probably might go, might be in jail, so I'll just, you know, answer it tomorrow. Taking it kind of as a joke, and so I called and I said, so do you have my mom? Because it was the police department. And I was like, what did she do now? And they're like, well, she didn't do anything. She's missing. I was completely in shock. And so I really didn't take it completely seriously until a month had gone by. But my birthday came along January 26th, and I didn't get a phone call. And I said, you know, something, something's not right. Because even when my mom and I would fight, we would always call each other on Mother's Day. We'd always call each other on Christmas. And we'd always call each other on our birthdays. Whether even if we were not talking to each other or fighting, those were the holidays we'd always call each other. And, you know, at least make up, but, you know, at least say happy birthday and I love you. And so when I didn't get the phone call, it was, I think I, that's when I kind of sank in that she wasn't here. As it's been over three years now since Joanne went missing, Laura has looked back on her mom's life and her history of domestic violence and believes that her mother is no longer alive, that Joanne's last abusive relationship, another that she couldn't walk away from, may have been what finally killed her. I'm Jordan Sims, and this is episode 37 of Thin Air Podcast, The Disappearance of Joanne Hakes. Well, I mean, when it started off, it was great. When Joanne met Ron, she was trying to break the cycle of drug addiction and bad relationships. They met in Idaho Falls, Idaho, and Joanne saw Ron as someone who could help her to be the person that she wanted to be. According to what my mom had told me, is he kind of came in as a knight in shining armor. When Laura says that, she means it a bit more literally. Ron, very religious, sees himself as a knight of God, sent here to enact God's will on earth. His Facebook profile picture is of a knight, 
And there's a quote on his page which reads, I am that I am sent me to protect and serve the kingdom he built. And he's told my mom and he's told me that he is here on this earth to serve God and he is here to take away all the evil. And if you ever go and look at his Facebook, he's he has that he's a knight ambassador as a missionary. And immediately those kind of put up red flags for me and that's why I never met him. But she said that he was very religious and that she met him and that he was going to change her whole world. In the beginning of their relationship, things appeared to Laura as going well between them and that Joanne may have thought this was the great love she had been waiting for. I mean, she said that how that she was drug free and she was he was really helping her and you know they have they had pictures of them you know going to I think it was his son's wedding and it looked I mean it, of course it looked picture perfect I think I mean it started I mean everything looks great in a relationship for the first year and then then you start to kind of see people's true colors I guess after that Laura mentioned that a major issue in their relationship was Ron's jealousy of other people in Joanne's life, especially men. Then they started having problems. Um, I think they lived in a basically a camper and there was a bunch of people that lived by him. And so they'd all hang out together. And there was a guy there that my mom liked um, as a friend. I don't know if anything ever led other than that. According to Ron, he was involved in drugs and not good. And so every every time Ron, I know there was a lot, there was a couple times where the cops had to go over there for a domestic violence, but then my mom would drop it. We checked through the Idaho court repository and through Wyoming court records. We couldn't find any records in Wyoming, but in Idaho, Ronald Wareheim has a record, including a 2010 battery charge and a domestic violence charge in January of 2014, just to name a few. In Idaho, Ron and Joanne lived with a close family member of Ron's, who saw their dynamic firsthand. We reached out to her for an interview, and she spoke to us, but throughout the course of the interview, it became clear that she's still afraid of Ron, despite the time and distance. She also asked that her real name not be used, so from here on out, we're going to refer to her as Aaron. Do you, are people in your family afraid of him? There's a lot of people, yeah. You know, a lot of people are scared of him, and a lot of people, he has a way of making people cower. And are, are you afraid of him? I would like to say no, but, you know, there's a deep down, I kind of am. He's not a very good man, dude. Like, I put him in jail twice for beating Joanne. While staying with Joanne and Ron in Idaho, Aaron saw how volatile their relationship was and how both of them abused methamphetamine. When Ron would beat Joanne, he would return to religious rhetoric, calling her a witch or a demon. Aaron believes that Ron suffers from mental illness. He believed that she had a demon in her. You know, like, he thinks he's a knight of God, and because he's the type of guy that he steps in a room, it lights up the whole entire room, dude. Like, he, he makes you believe anything that you want, like, he wants you to make you believe. Like, he was screaming at her, which be gone, which be gone, which be gone. And I was like, you need to go to psycho ward, you know, this and that. And I told him, if you don't leave her alone, that I will call the cops. And he looked at me and said, do it. 
So I went over to a stinker store, and I called the cops, and he was arrested that night. Aaron also moved to Wyoming, close to Joanne and Ron in Afton, after she lived with them in Idaho. She actually saw Ron the night that Joanne disappeared. Well, he was very distraught about it. You know, I know that. The night where she went disappearing, people, I guess they were into the bar before they went or they came home. And well, according to people at the bar, they all said that they were arguing. She didn't want to go home with him, I guess. And they went home, though, and they got the last person that she was seen with was him. This scene at the bar. There are multiple perspectives on what happened that night. Laura heard that, and it's hard to know where this detail came from, but she heard that Joanne may have been flirting with other men. Did her and the suspect, Ronald Wareheim, had been at a bar. She had kind of been flirting, kind of had too much to drink. She was flirting with some other guys. And she ended up getting kicked out around 10, 10.30 that night. When we reached out to the owner of the Silver Stream Lodge, they did not give us the name of the bartender who saw Joanne and Ron that night, but they did give us some conflicting information. The owner said that, quote, you've been given some very untrue info about Mrs. Hakes. She was a registered guest of the Silver Stream. She left voluntarily on the evening of her disappearance with her boyfriend for a New Year's party you need to contact the Lincoln County, Wyoming sheriff who did the investigation, end quote. When we pressed for more information, the owner replied, I'm sorry, but we just don't know any more actual facts about that evening. They left together and we never saw her again. The owner responding this way is somewhat confusing. First, because he said they left to go to a New Year's party and that this, January 1st, was the night in question. But Joanne, according to Laura and her missing persons flyer, was last seen on January 3rd. Aaron also said that on New Year's Eve, Ron showed up and was upset about Joanne leaving. Um, it was on New Year's, New Year's Eve, came down to my house where I was both staying at, and he was just like, Joanne hasn't came home, she took off with these men. You know, and he was sitting there crying, and he's like, I don't know where she's supposed to be back. I guess she owed these guys money. And so she went out to go get them their money and never came home. I told him, like, give her three days. If she's not back in three days, call her in missing. Well, three days went by, he didn't call her in missing, and he just wouldn't call her in. But Laura received Facebook messages from Joanne and a request for her friendship sometime on January 1st. On one of Joanne's Facebook profiles, there's activity on January 3rd that is public. She shared some articles and posted some brief thoughts on them. But maybe this wasn't Joanne, but someone who had access to her profile. So I guess what I'm saying is it's unclear exactly when she went missing, if it was on New Year's Eve or on the night of January 3rd. There's also the issue of the two men in the truck. Both Laura and Aaron have said that no one, other than Ron, ever saw the men or the truck, either at the bar or in town afterwards. 
from the police report, it said that he saw her getting into a truck with two men. Those would probably be the two men that she was getting money for, right? Yeah. And there's been no sighting of this truck at all. As Aaron mentioned, Ron would not report Joanne as a missing person. But there were other things she began to notice that she found more alarming, like Ron getting rid of some of Joanne's belongings. Laura, who spoke to Aaron about this, tells the story. Well, I guess she would visit every so often, and then she kind of started not saying that she wasn't around. And she caught Ron throwing away to what looked to be some clothes of hers, and that put up some red flags for her. And then she, she was the one that turned turned everything in. Someone needed to step up and call her in, you know, because something just did not seem right, you know. And I don't know why he was just didn't do it, you know. I don't know. Were you in the same room when you did it, or were you, did you do it on your own? I um, did it. I was at work when I called her in. I took a lunch break, and I, call, I went, was in my car, and I called him. You just had a, kind of a, a bad feeling about it? Yeah, I was talking to one my coworker, and I was talking about it, and she told me that I needed to do it, dude. Like, it's something that needed to be done. Did he seem concerned about, about her being missing? At first, yeah, but then after a while, it just like he didn't, it didn't seem like he really looked for her. And I don't think Ron was very happy with the situation, so she wasn't really talking to him at the time, which I completely understand because, I mean, by the sounds of what he's capable of doing from different family members I've talked to, they're they're like very scared of Ron. They won't talk to me about him. I've gotten some things um, of how actually uh, physically abusive he can be, but it's really sad when the family is so scared of him, they won't come forward. And I think that's where no one's coming forward on this because they're scared. And I completely understand. For Laura, all of the inconsistencies in Ron's story add up. She made it clear that she believes Ron had everything to do with Joanne's disappearance. She openly refers to him and insists that detectives do too as a suspect. That she went, she got into a car with a couple guys, but she was in some truck. And that story, from what I believe, isn't true. I think Ron had gotten mad and. He he did something, and it's completely not clear as to where she is or what he did. Laura decided to call Ron herself and ask him if he knew where her mom was. This was the first time she had ever spoken to him, and in this conversation, he blamed Laura for her mother's disappearance. I asked him, you know, where do you know where she might be? His answer response to me was, well, you know, you killed her. She probably committed suicide because you didn't see her at Christmas and you put her through hell. So this is on you. And obviously to me, anyone that has a guilty conscience is going to reverse it onto somebody else, but they're also going to be very defensive. And That was the first time I've ever had a conversation with him, and so it didn't really go as planned. And all I asked him was, you know, do you know where she is? And he immediately 
turned it into a response of, well, she's, you know, obviously she's gone. And you did it, she killed herself. And that's not even what I was asking. So for that to be the first response completely put up red flags. Immediately I knew something was not right. More when we get back from this short break. This episode of Thin Air is brought to you by Aptiv. Aptiv produces audio-based workouts created by certified personal trainers, available through a mobile app. Aptiv has expert trainers that deliver maximum results and help motivate you to achieve your fitness goals. Each trainer is highly certified, and you can choose from a wide array of trainer styles and personalities, all tailored to best help you. Aptiv has its own in-house music production, and these are paired with each trainer to create music playlists that are perfectly timed to the intensity and pace of your workout. So when you need that extra boost, the music is there to keep you going, and when it's time to slow down, the music relaxes with you. Aptiv has a flexible audio workout format so you can work out the way you like, and there are a wide variety of classes and levels, all to keep you challenged and engaged. And Aptiv has a supportive community of other Aptiv members of all levels reaching for their fitness goals just like you. I have loved using Aptiv when I go running outside through diet and exercise. I don't mean to brag here, but I have lost 35 pounds over the past six months. So I was so excited to try Aptiv's audio workouts to help keep me motivated. One of my biggest issues with working out is about halfway through, I'm just sort of plugging away, like, come on, let's just get this over with. But what I really like about Aptiv's personal trainers is it feels like they're there with you, guiding you and pushing you to keep going. So if you sometimes struggle during your workouts to stay motivated like me, Aptiv is your own personal motivator, right in your ears, always giving you the energy to keep going. So why don't you give it a shot? Subscriptions start at $14.99 billed monthly or $99.99 for an annual membership. For a limited time, new members get 50% off an annual membership, which is just $49.99 for the whole year of unlimited workouts. Visit aptiv.com slash thin air. That's A-A-P-T-I-V dot com slash thin air. From your perspective, what is her personality like? Can you kind of talk about what what is she like? She was very shy. You know, she struggled with depression really bad. And basically when he met her, she was staying in her car. You know, she was on the verge of committing suicide and he rescued her. She was very unstable. Joanne was described by both Laura and Aaron as being emotionally unstable. It's the reason that Laura often had to disconnect from her mom. Across Joanne's public Facebook profiles, you begin to get a sense of what Joanne was like. On one post, a profile picture from January 6th, 2014, Joanne wrote the following, quote, just not feeling much of life anymore. I mean, who really cares? I know some are few and far between, but 
I truly need help here, and no one replies back. You really find out the people that say they love you when you're in need of help. I have no gas and have to be out by Friday. I can pay back. Anyone, this is serious. So it's clear that she struggled with depression and financial instability. But what else is clear is that she loved her grandchildren and her daughter, that she wished she could be closer to them without quite knowing how to get out of the bad situations in her life. One profile picture is the three of them, Joanne, Laura, and her oldest grandson. One post reads in frantic capital letters, I wish and pray that nothing this time for sure will come between us again. You're my babies. It's my job to worry about you all. And the fact that I can't help as much, but I do try. In another post to Laura, she writes, You are the best of me, always and forever. Sometimes she had like three Facebooks, or I guess four. Um, there's, I mean, there's one Facebook that has a bunch of pictures of like me and her and my oldest son. And that's pretty much all she got to see as far as grandchildren was was my oldest son and there's pictures of her and him playing and those are those are the memories I want to have so could Joanne have just up and left her life or worse committed suicide that this argument she had with Ron that night was just too much and she took off intent on ending her own life several things suggest that this is unlikely First, Joanne's case is presented publicly by police in an interesting way. In her missing persons flyer, there's no mention of a truck or two men that she was last seen with. Could this mean that police don't put much validity into this piece of information? Laura is careful to only repeat these details, saying that this is what Ron said, not necessarily what happened that night. Joanne's case is currently being investigated by the Wyoming Department of Criminal Investigation. Our calls to these detectives were not returned, but Laura stressed the detectives are working very actively on her mom's case. It's a cold case. Um, it was a cold case after a year. I am in contact with both the detectives. I had them over at my house. Um, I'm trying to get some of her belongings. I know it sounds kind of crazy, but I don't have anything... A body. I don't have anything to bring me peace. So I kind of thought, you know, if we did a little bonfire with some of her belongings or clothes, at least we're getting something of hers that we can actually, you know, say goodbye to. It's still active. They're trying different kind of ways of, you know, talking and going about things with the suspect and stuff like that. So when you reported her missing... How did the police react? Were they curious? Like, how, do you think they took it seriously? How did reporting her missing go? They took it very seriously, you know, because they, they even came to my work and called me in. You know, they visited me at my work. They called me and I went in multiple times and had interviews with them. And they even kept in contact with me. The next reason that Laura thinks it's unlikely that her mom left on her own is because she left all of her things behind except for a debit card that Ron says she had on her and has never been found. 
do you think it's possible that she may, I mean, that she did just take off, that she left her stuff behind and she just left? Do you think that that is possible? Well, the thing is, like, when she took her debit card with her, okay, well, the thing is that if she went to go get money out of the, their account, it would have shown that she went got money out of it, but it was no money was taken out of her account. Yeah, so how do you start a new life if you don't have any money? Yeah. She always got paid on a Social Security card or whatever they have on the third of every month. That has not been touched at all. My mom, you know, doing drugs, they need money to get it. And so to me, that really, really stood out to me that something was wrong. You know, wherever she was or, you know, if she was in trouble, she would use that money. There was one sighting of someone who may have been Joanne that seemed promising. There was there was one where we thought um, it was it was in close to Texas and which the Texas one. I mean, it made sense when we were talking about it. And this was probably a year ago. But I mean, it was so, so close. The bone structure, the jaw, the I mean, it just I mean, it looked like someone that was very strung out on drugs. But I mean, it looked exactly like her was not her. But, I mean, my friends and everyone knows that if there was any way she could get a hold of me, she would have. When I asked Erin if she thought Ron was guilty, her answer changed several times over the course of our conversation. Yeah, I, I, I believe the story, you know, because it's something that sounds like something Joanne would do. When he told me that she left everything, that's not like her. She always has her purse on her. She always... Had so, she always takes something, so she was, she was planning on leaving, then I would see her taking her stuff. It's just like, I don't, I, I can't, I really don't know what happened. For Laura, Ron's strange behavior and the fact that he refers to himself as a god warrior provides him with a potential motive for hurting Joanne. And to him, I mean, I can truly believe that he does not think he did anything wrong. And for him to think that he's a knight or a missionary and taking people out that represent evil, I, I can see that's where, I mean, he thought he was doing good work. He thought he was making a turn for the better for her. And I, I think maybe either she had, she either relapsed or may have been trying to see somebody else into him that was adultery or something in the relationship where he figured, well, I can no longer help her. And the best way is to give her back to somebody that can. Ron was interviewed by police, of course. Laura said that investigators have not shared any evidence of foul play with her. Of course, he is just a suspect. Nothing has been brought forth as evidence or anything. So this is all just what the detectives and I believe, Ron is very squeaky clean. So he kind of, he was brought in once and he knew he didn't have to be there. And that's just, he, he's very, very smart, I guess, in the way he goes about things. When I spoke to Erin, she didn't know where Ron was living now and she hadn't been in contact with him for over a year. 
After some online research, we found that Ronald Wareheim was arrested in Cache County, Utah for possession of a controlled substance and paraphernalia in August of 2017. He was arrested again on February 2nd, 2018 for a warrant violation. Ron is currently detained at the Cache County Jail in Logan, Utah. For Laura, there is no question if Ron was involved. It's really, I mean, it's been almost three years, so that's really unlike me to reach out and try to get her story out there just because I wanted it. I guess I was more afraid of the suspect, and now that being afraid is gone, now it's more um, letting him know that, you know, my brother and I are going to be fine. My brother and I are very strong, and we've been through a lot in our life. You can't take away someone's memories. That's the, I mean, I just want him to know he didn't win. Since her mother's disappearance, Laura has had a lot of time to look back and think about her mother's life, their relationship, and what her mom went through. Through all of the bad relationships and difficulties, Laura just saw her mom as someone who, ultimately, just wanted to be loved. And she wanted to have that relationship where it was a forever thing. She had it. I mean, she truly was in love with one guy her whole life, and they were together for 12 years. But he was also a guy that did something to me, and that really changed our whole relationship, me, my, my mom and I's relationship. You know, I'd, I'd break down without her sometimes. I mean, it's, it's your mom. Of course, you want her in your life, no matter what she does to piss you off. And I mean, the things I said to her before she went missing, now that she feels her mother is gone, Laura remembers her mother as someone who maybe knew that her time was short. In her words, she always told me, she's like, I, you're not going to know how much I love you until I'm not here anymore. And towards the end, she was just very like, you need to know how much I love you. You need to know now. And it was just, it was kind of, I mean, it was like she knew something was going to happen. I mean... She's like, you just need to know how much I love you, how much I always care about you and your brother. And I was like, yeah, mom, but you know, you did this. And I was just not forgiving. And now she was right. I mean, I didn't know how much she actually cared and, until she was gone. As Laura has just begun to reach out to the media about the details of her mom's case, she wanted to speak up for all loved ones of people who have gone missing. There's, it's so easy to go through Facebook or any social media and look at someone that's missing, you know, someone shared a post or something and be like, well, thank goodness that's not me. And when it does become you, it's a completely different story. So I just, I really want everyone that does go through this to know that they're not alone. Laura also wanted to speak more directly to the person that she just calls the suspect to let him know that one day the truth will come out. The person that, you know, did do something, I, I, I want them to know that it probably ought to be exhausting at this point, three years later, to carry all that with them. It's, it's really got to be exhausting. And I want the person that did this to know that you didn't hurt me and my brother. There's evil in the world. There's things that happen every day, but, but they don't get to have 
they don't get to have that victory in doing what they did. They they didn't they didn't hurt us. And so I think they just the person that did this needs to come forward because I think it's just going to eat at you every day until until you can't take it anymore. Today, Joanne Hakes would be 45 years old. She had brown hair that was sometimes dyed either black or blonde. She was five foot three and weighed 140 pounds. She was last seen wearing a black fleece jacket, blue jeans, and a white t-shirt. If you have any information, please contact the Lincoln County Sheriff's Office or the Wyoming Department of Criminal Investigation. Contact information is on our website at thinairpodcast.com. You can also contact us directly and we will pass information along. That's at contact at thinairpodcast.com. Thank you to Laura Jones and the close relative that we called Aaron for speaking with us. Thin Air Podcast is produced by me, Jordan Sims, and Daniel Calderon, with production assistance from Nate Halda. Music is provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Check them out at sessions.blue. Thin Air Podcast is supported by our donors at patreon.com slash thinairpodcast. One of the rewards is to be credited as an executive producer of our show. The executive producers of Thin Air Podcast are Paige Liano, Adam Barbary, Irene Ryan, Sarah Donahue, L. McManus, Bridger Mobley, Susan Anderson, Skeeter Hall, Wendy Gabbery, Bridger Mobley, Susan Anderson, Jack and Christy Lupian, Drusilla Dents, Rebecca Hardberger, Heather Cadu, Bonnie Mortensen, Mistea Pena, Elizabeth Farmer, and Anthony Loper. Thank you all so much for your incredible support.